Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. I am Ikrashi Guftachima, your host for the New Books Network. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Mary J. Magolik to talk about her book, The Goddess Smith in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture, a Feminist Critique, published by the University Press of Mississippi in February 2022. Thank you so much for joining us today, um, Dr. Mikulik. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a professor of English at Georgia College. I've been here um, doing this since 2000, which is when I finished my PhD actually in folklore at Indiana University. And uh, for that dissertation, I did research in Nishnabe culture, which is um, an indigenous tribe in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, on uh, cultural renewal and narrative and poetic expressions of that. And then I've also done quite a bit of travel. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Senegal back in the 80s. I was a Fulbright scholar in 2006 in um, Croatia. I've taught, researched, studied abroad in a number of other countries, and I have a very um, deep interest in cross-cultural connections and how trying to learn about other cultures and getting to know each other in as many different kinds of situations as possible can help us to not only understand each other, but can also give us better tools for understanding art and interpreting art of all kinds, be it you know, visual arts or musical arts or, or literary arts, and uh, which is the area I mainly focus in. Wonderful, thank you. So how did this book start? It started with several conference presentations, um, some of them at the American Folklore Society meetings, I am a folklorist. That's my main academic area, but I also work in an English department. So I've also presented the work to colleagues in literature, in popular culture, some of those big annual conferences of the um, Popular Culture Association. And I kept finding myself coming back to it and looking for more examples. At first, I started with just like kind of a few goddesses on the spectrum of, you know, the sort of good goddess and the bad goddess representations. But I kept thinking of more examples. And then this kind of turned into an article that actually got rejected. But the feedback for that gave me good ideas for how to deepen the research and make it better and answer questions that might, um, that I just didn't feel like an article could do justice to the topic when I really thought about it more deeply. And then I got uh, my university gives some professional research leaves. So I had um, some of those and some summer support as well. And I managed to um, produce a draft and then sent it in and, and now it's in the world. Yeah, it's a really thorough um, and very comprehensive book. And it's interesting to think about the presence of these myths in pretty much all cultures in different ways. Like, you know, um, fascinating to just read through that book and then bring out these examples from other experiences a lot of times. Um, so uh, how would you introduce this book to our audience? So it considers goddesses that, that we create um, in our culture within the last 
mostly the last 150 years or so, um, but really mostly since the 70s are the ones that I really go in depth on. It also considers God as culture a little bit because I think that what I call God as culture uh, has helped to popularize the idea of goddesses and make them attractive and make the idea of this prehistoric culture dominated by goddesses attractive to Hollywood and attractive to a lot of writers and thinkers. And so uh, in thinking about them and looking at them and analyzing them more in depth, I saw patterns and messages that seemed more reflective of our culture. And I also happened to, to be able to travel in Southwestern France uh, way back the first time in 2001 and seeing some of those sites there of prehistory really ignited my imagination. It sparked my interest in ways that um, were very profound and I'm still actually doing work in that region. But then shortly thereafter, The Da Vinci Code came out, which is a book that became this phenomenal bestseller that posits some of these ideas but the more I looked into the research, I saw that there's a lot of problems with the idea of a goddess-dominated prehistory. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of interested in listening to what people have to say on all sides of issues. So I didn't want to just reflexively say, oh, goddesses are great and goddess culture is great. And so that's kind of um, part of what the first part looks at is questioning some of those assumptions and patterns and trying to listen to what a lot of the experts, which includes like a lot of contemporary feminist archaeologists and then other social science research on uh, these ideas, but also uh, looking at the pop culture versions of things is something I've always been interested in. And so a lot of the book is really digging into what we see in some of these books, films, and television that recreate goddesses, which we do often in our culture. So those are um, some of the main things that the book is about. Wonderful. So my next question is more about the perception around myths in our culture. How do you compare myths in the past to the myths in the present and the way they are perceived in popular imagination? Yes, myths have always been something I think that people considered special, even though we do use the word myth today to mean just something that's not true and we use it fairly casually in certain circumstances. I think that most people still recognize that there is some gravitas attached to myth as a concept and as a reality. And people at least think, well, it goes back to ancient Greece, which most people respect as a pretty important culture. They were in the past told, received, understood often in sacred context. So they might've been part of rituals. And this was a time when People didn't have the access to stories that we have. We can find any kind of story at any time of the day or night. And that wasn't always the case. And so they probably held a, a sacred aura to them. And then they were also about these sacred things that were worldview forming, that were metaphorically profound. And so they bound people together. And some scholars even think that it's possible that 
human beings sort of became the dominant spe- hominid species on the planet because we had this shared culture that probably included uh, myths and rituals and so on. And that's reflected in some of this ancient art, like the kind of stuff I saw in southwestern France. In our world, where there are stories everywhere, and we really live inside of stories, um, we still think of things as mythic as being more important. But even back in ancient Greece, um, they thought of myth as the more fabulous kind of words, the stories that were imaginative and not exactly logical or true. Those were the word logos referred to that kind of word. Mythos was the one related to the more fabulous kinds. But these stories continue to have a resonance uh, throughout many aspects of our culture. So we call a lot of things myth today, often imply uh, applying that term very inaccurately, like an example I give to my students often to try to help them to remember is Mythbusters, you know, that television show. They never once that I saw examined an actual myth, what a folklorist, what a what a mythologist would call a myth. But, you know, the word myth appeals to us. And Mythbusters just sounds better than rumor busters or legend busters or something, which is what they mostly examined. And then there can be newer myths. I mean, some people really, I think, like to use the word myth just for the older examples. But I think anything that's really grappling with these big existential questions that deals with fundamental patterns and and maybe even still can acquire a little bit of a sacred tinge, as sacred as it might be to some people who cosplay Star Wars or Star Trek or things like that, you know, that that starts to have kind of a sacred tinge. And some of the stuff they do is not that different from some of the rituals in the ancient world. Um, So for the purposes of the book, I considered goddess myths to be any stories that included goddesses or worlds with goddess frameworks. In other words, where people had memories of this goddess culture and possible matriarchy. So um, myths still matter to us and they're still being created. And there's some really amazing new myths out there, many of which are recycling pretty old patterns, but some of which are are wonderful. Yeah, fascinating. I was very struck by um, the use of the term goddess culture because I hadn't really thought about it that way before because, you know, we always kind of like are interacting with um, some of the examples that you brought up in your book, like Daenerys Targaryen or Jessica Johns or, you know, even like talking about Da Vinci's Code. So I I think it's like a great framework to just kind of like access it and think about that. Um, So how do you view the relationship between contemporary feminist politics and the new goddess myths in contemporary culture? Yeah, it's a complex question and there's not like a simple answer, but Um, There definitely are still feminists out there who probably feel annoyed or or maybe even worse with the kind of work that I do. Um, I know previous people who have written uh, some of the kinds of things that this book looks at have, you know, been critiqued pretty heavily by members of what I call goddess culture or the goddess community. In other words, people who do believe that there was this prehistory dominated by goddesses and possibly matriarchy. Um, But like Cynthia Eller says in her book, 
called uh, the myth of or the myth of matriarchal prehistory: why an invented past won't give us a future, or something close to that. Sorry if I got it a little bit wrong. Um, we don't need to have evidence of anything woman-dominated in the past to imagine a brighter future. And there are also many feminisms. Like, it's there shouldn't, in my opinion, be some sort of gatekeeping of, you know, oh, this is the only feminist way to look at it. There have been feminist archaeologists and feminist social sciences critiquing this theory since its earliest days. So it's not new. It's not suddenly that feminists decided, you know, no, this doesn't make sense. I try not to be a gatekeeper for what you're saying is wrong kind of perspective. I try not to be too critical. I just try to really listen to what the fem contemporary feminist archaeologists can tell us about these cultures. And the vast majority of them today say that there's simply, we can't prove that there was a matriarchal prehistory. We can't prove that prehistory was dominated by goddesses. And so let's see what we can figure out about the past. And I approached the topic with trying to really look at what I saw going on in these myths today. Maybe they were having good effects. Maybe they were having troubling effects. I just wanted to look at them and see like what patterns did I see emerging from them. And I think that um, a lot of the early people who really embraced the goddess-dominated uh, prehistory theory were from that second wave of feminism in the 60s and 70s and were very, they really truly believed this and saw this potential for a brighter future. And they were hungry for some sort of, you know, deeper answers about some of the kinds of suffering that they were experiencing. But in recent years, with the third and then the fourth waves of feminism that um, urge us to consider things from more intersectional perspectives that allow women to have newer patterns, I, I think they really do um, offer newer patterns that, and complexities that are important. And so to me, the best examples we have of goddesses in popular culture today are some of the ones that have come out in, in more recent years. Which isn't to say, I mean, I do look at a couple like um, Alice Walker and Leslie Marmon Silco that are a little bit um, older. So, I mean, there were things happening all along that were interesting, but I just tried to approach it as not um, something that's already known, but really in the spirit of inquiry, what, what can a feminist reading of these tell us, or at least what did it tell me? <laughs> Maybe not everybody will be persuaded by my reading of it, but I found certain patterns and, and messages that I think are, are compelling and something we should consider. Nice. Um, so you, you bring examples from literature and film and TV in your book to talk about the goddess culture and our perceptions of like goddess myths. Um, how do you compare these examples with each other from literature and from film and TV? So the um, for the most part, I think 100% of the literature, the novels that I examine were written by women in the book. But the films, of course, have 
mixed creators and crews, but predominantly they're dominated by men. And so it might not be surprising that of the examples that I looked at, the examples that take a more romanticized approach to these goddesses, in other words, they embrace the idea of a prehistory dominated by goddesses, they embrace a potential former matriarchy, and when they look into those cultures and recreate them fictionally, they look at them as very positive things, or, or at least formerly positive things. And so those are what I call the more romanticized or good goddesses. The bad goddesses come mostly, perhaps not surprisingly, out of the industry dominated by men, where they tend to be forces of chaos, destruction. They're on the dark side. Uh, so Thor Ragnarok has Hela, which was a very exciting thing in the in the MCU, the Marvel comic universe, because it was the first really big bad woman in in these Marvel films, and it was played by Kate Blanchett. So um, Hel Hela was the name of the goddess in that one, but she's you know she's bad. She's a really destructive, evil fun sort of villain. <laughs> and there's others as well that I look at in there. So um, the Wicker Man films are really fun. They're, they're horror films that, well, they become kind of campy almost, but people really, um, really get into them. And they show the kinds of ways that these goddess cultures can be seen as problematic, at least maybe from this male gaze. So, and then television shows like um, True Blood has Lilith, I think, is this, you know, she's like covered in blood and she's sort of the progenitor of the vampires and evil and so on. Or um, I look at some of the, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Joss Whedon productions where um, each of them have some pretty bad goddess-like characters so there's glory in season five of Buffy and there's uh, um, the one that takes over Fred Burkle, Illyria in Angel, who are, are, you know, again, pretty, pretty evil forces, dark forces, at least in their worlds. So I, there's quite a consistent pattern among almost all the film and television goddesses that I've considered over these many years since I first started working on this way back in like 2004 or something that seem pretty consistent to me. Whereas in the literature, I look at people like um, Jean Owl, who has this Earth's Children series, the most famous of which was The Clan of the Cave Bear, which was also made into a major motion picture. And there it's set, you know, 30,000 years ago in the Paleolithic. And these people were practicing matriarchy and the worship of a mother goddess. It's, you know, it's a sweet book. It's, it's this very romanticized view of women that basically settles on women as nurturers and mothers and, and, you know, their sexual fulfillment is important to the stories and so on. There's also, I look at Marion Zimmer Bradley, whose work is set in the Arthurian times. Um, and, and basically saying goddess culture was wonderful, but now it's gone. 
<laughs> except for little secret glimmers that we might be able to latch on to. So throwing a little sort of Easter egg in there, I guess, for, for the goddess community today. And then, you know, I mentioned um, Leslie Marmon Silko, who's a Native American writer, and Alice Walker, an African-American writer. And they don't portray goddesses specifically per se, but they have characters who build these little communities that are buoyed up by and inspired by the the glimmer of this goddess myth that they're able to sort of recover and perceive in their worlds. And they build some pretty interesting communities. And then in my my favorite chapter is the the last one with the more contemporary writers whose goddesses are more complex. So we have Circe, who is the goddess Circe from Greek mythology, but we see the, her story from her perspective. And it's it's a very moving and, and human portrait and beautifully written book. And then N.K. Jemisin's trilogy, the Broken Earth trilogy, is also a, a really fabulous contemporary speculative fiction writer. And, and those works, I think, are are so far my favorite works of hers. And they create these goddesses who, you know, in the romanticized versions, the goddesses are sort of, and goddess culture is portrayed as almost perfect, right? Like a utopia. In the Hollywood versions and television versions, they're portrayed as maybe what you would expect. Like, we don't really want powerful women, do we? Because look at how scary and ugly they are and that kind of thing. Whereas these works by Jemison and Miller and Tomi Adeyemi and others are very, um, they give more space for women to just be who we are, which is complex beings that have some of the romanticized qualities and maybe some of the vilified qualities. And, you know, that's okay. Women are not just pigeonholed to these impossible extremes. So that's why I, I look at those as my most interesting examples. These are wonderful, very fascinating examples. <laughs> um, so one thing that I was curious about, you know, like we talk about these matriarchal goddess myths um, and in contemporary culture, we see motherhood or choosing to be a mother or being a good mother are all very like hotly contested debates, almost globally with more women joining the workforce and the cost of bearing and then raising a child. How do you comment on that in the light of the matriarchal? goddess myths and the portrayal of like these various uh, goddesses that you just discussed. Yeah. So one of the issues that a lot of people have had with goddess culture and, and really portrayals of women more generally throughout our culture is that women are often what we call essentialized. Like they are, they are reduced to an essence of their being, which is to say it often boils down to these very, emotional and nurturing ideas like, um, you know, that they are more in touch with emotions, that they're somehow more connected to nature, that they are inherently more nurturing and loving and giving. And Simone de Beauvoir was talking about this way back in the mid 20th century as a problematic thing that otherizes women, right? It, it puts her into this extreme and essentialized category that doesn't ever allow her to have access to what are then considered, of course, the opposite of all those things that are considered feminine, then are the masculine. And it 
places, first of all, woman as secondary to man and man as the primary subject of like history and most literature and so on. And man becomes this very um, rational, scientific, logical, reasonable builder, you know, of all of the things contrasting these more emotional, essentialized womanly aspects. So motherhood becomes part of that. And it's problematic, not only from a feminist perspective, for women to be told this is your ultimate self. You must be a mother, a, you know, a lover, a, a nurturer, and perhaps an artist, um, an emotional being who's more in tune with natural rhythms. Does that mean men cannot be in tune with nature? Can they not be emotional? Can they not be nurturers? Can they not experience true love or you know, parenting or something like that. And of course, that means it's limiting for both sides. Not only does it essentialize women into only being supposed to at least have access to those um, parts of human existence, but it sort of suggests that men do not have access to those parts of human existence. And of course, they can be very beautiful parts of human existence. All of the things on that emotional nurturing side of the spectrum are wonderful, but there's no reason any gender can't have access to those. There, there should not be uh, gender-specific categories that way. And likewise, there's no reason that women can't have access to the so-called male characteristics. They don't have to simply be pigeonholed into this emotional nurturing realm. So I approach looking at motherhood from you know, that whole perspective and the way the mother goddess is often the type of goddess that gets most attention in goddess culture. There are other kinds of goddesses that, that a lot of women gravitate toward as well, but the mother goddess is kind of the classic idea of the unified goddess. And it's interesting because first of all, <laughs> One little tiny thing. In all of the images we have of women from prehistory, and I go into this more in the early part of the book, but first of all, a lot of people out there have an impression, I think, that most of the representations of women or of human beings were of women and that they were goddesses. First of all, we don't know if they were goddesses. We have no way of proving that. And secondly, it's simply not true that there are more representations of women. No more than all the experts say, no more than 50% of all the images of human beings, all representations of human beings from both the Neolithic and the Paleolithic periods can be definitively determined to be women. So 50% is not a preponderance and very few, particularly of the Paleolithic images of women, the old Stone Age, the really old stuff from pre 10,000 years ago all of that, there are no images of women like breastfeeding babies or holding babies. I mean, some of them might be pregnant, so there might be an implied reverence of motherhood, or it might be an implied reverence of fertility and abundance, or we don't know what, the harvest or something, you know? So it, we can't definitively say that people always worshiped motherhood. And the earliest people who 
where proponents of these theories actually thought that there, they posited, these Victorian men, that there was a prehistory dominated by goddesses and, the, and matriarchies, but they thought that that was a terrible error in judgment. And it came because early human beings didn't understand the reproductive process. And so they worshiped women for the ability to create new life. They didn't understand that men had a part in that process, which now most archeologists and scientists of prehistory say, you know, that's nonsense. People always knew how babies were made. So, I mean, they might not have known every single scientific detail that we do, but they certainly knew that you needed both sexes. So, um, so motherhood becomes problematic also in the particular ways they get portrayed in these pop culture and literary versions, because being a mother is, does not always mean you're automatically a good person or a goddess, right? There are bad mothers and there are lots of children who will, who have written memoirs and talked about and documented the fact that, you know, they feel like their mothers really harmed them in various ways. And even if people try to be a good mother, they sometimes make mistakes and then they get racked with guilt, right? So motherhood itself carries a lot of pressure and it's just not automatically that, you know, everything connected to motherhood is beautiful and wonderful and perfect. And, you know, only a mother can have access to these positive things. So I, I just um, think it's an important thing not to pigeonhole people into any kind of any gendered person into one category of stuff that you're supposed to embody or be and say, that's all you have access to, or that's mostly what you have access to. And then other genders somehow have access to this other stuff and not to that stuff. Look, we're all human beings. We are all children of nature. It's absurd and illogical to say that certain human beings somehow are more natural or less natural than other human beings, at least from a scientific point of view, which is what I follow. <laughs> Yes, that's very true. Thank you so much for giving such a detailed response to that. It's all super fascinating. And your book is very thorough because generally, I think when most people think about myths or even like goddesses, then too, a lot of times you only go like as far as, you know, Greek myths. And you point that in the book that it's a very kind of like a recent point in human history. So I really love that you go like all the way back to like Neolithic and Paleolithic eras and like explore these myths from those periods. How long did it take you to write this book? <laughs> a long time. Like I said, I think I mentioned, I think my first paper that I ever deliver, delivered connected to it might have been somewhere around 2005, I think, but I'm not 100% positive. So, you know, that's a good 17 years, I guess. I would say at least 15 years I've been working on. I, it wasn't always my main focus. I've had a lot of other things I've been working on along the way as well. But I really um, made the push to transform it from an article. I had, as I say, this article that had been rejected. And then over the years, I had kind of worked a little more on it and done more research and tried to answer some of the objections and questions and stuff. And so I had this like, 75 page unwieldy article. You know, it's too long for an article. It was too short for a book. And then I got this sabbatical from a university, um, Georgia College, thank you. And 
that during that semester, I was able to really flesh it out into a, a, a book. And then uh, it, the book was a little unwieldy. I think I maybe went a little bit too far in the other extreme and I tried to put in maybe too much, um, got too many examples and tried to make it too definitive or whatever. So then I kind of let go of that. And I said, no, I want this to be a little bit more readable, which I hope it is now. It's a little shorter. It's around 200 pages. And I threw out some of the examples that I felt were not like the strongest examples from many of the chapters. And I tried to make it all a little more cohesive and to flow a little better and stuff too. And so I had a summer research award as well to work on that one summer. And, and at that point it felt pretty pulled together. And then relatively shortly thereafter, I I got the contract from the press. So it, it was a process. It's, it's a long process for sure, but it was very interesting the whole way through. It was, there was never a point at which I thought I'm sick of this. I want to be done with it. I mean, I'm still interested. I'm still going back and thinking, thinking through a few of my points and thinking, oh, I should have, should have looked at that a little differently, or I could have said this better. And, you know, I still have examples that I think of in my head and, and that I'd, I'd like to, you know, work on more, but yeah, it's been a, a an enjoyable process for the most part, but a, yeah. a lengthy one. Definitely. And, you know, maybe there's uh, room for one more book there with like more examples and like more points that you have been thinking about. <laughs> well, I actually have this idea that my next book is going to, well, I actually have a, a a book that is pretty much written. It needs to go into a press that's based on my dissertation work. That's about this uh, cultural renewal among Anishinaabe people. But then I want to work on a book on witches <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> by, by women writers, maybe some television wishes, but I think it's mostly going to be witches and novels and looking at them as um, like how we marginalize women often, particularly, you know, in the past, but still to some extent today, mm-hmm. that women who seem too powerful or just strange or who don't fit the norms, right? Who don't become wives or mothers or who grow out of being wives and mothers. Mm -hmm. And then there's not really a place for them in society and how those are often our witches. And then of course, like, and even in the traditional fairy tales, the old crone, you know, she can either help the young maiden on her quest or she can try to kill her or hurt her or something. And that to me is really interesting. And and the way that we have stigmatized witches, but then also there's a lot of great new books. Uh, like Circe is an example of one of the ones I looked at in this book, and I would say Jemison's work as well, of more also you could call those women witches and positive views of them as, as, as witchery as a metaphor for women claiming space for themselves in the world and saying, you know, I deserve to exist basically and I have things to offer to the world. And I think that that's probably going to be a fun project to work on in the coming years. It sounds like a really fascinating project and I really look forward to it. Um, Do you have any suggestions or leads about like how should readers or scholars approach this book? Well, um, you can, you could skip through, to chapters that you're particularly interested in. So like I mentioned, part one is really the, 
the underpinning of some of the bigger arguments about, you know, was prehistory dominated by goddesses or matriarchies? What does the evidence show? And then also just like, what is feminism? What is myth? How, how do the study of myth and feminism help us to approach some of the kind of material that I'm looking at? So, you know, if you feel like that's not something you're interested in, you could always skip to part two, which is where I really just dig into the examples. And then you could even pick like, what show do I like? Do I want to look at the films and television shows or do I want to look at the books? And which, if so, do I want to look at the books where they romanticize goddess culture or do I want to look at these more contemporary, what I call mixed message myths? Um, So I think it is possible to skip around in it. Of course, ideally, I would like people to get, you know, the whole argument so they see everything that I'm saying, but I think that if people were just interested in sort of what folklorists or what mythologists do and how their theories can be interested in analyzing literature, this could be very interesting to them. I think if people don't have a lot of experience with feminism and how feminist theory can be used to analyze literary or artistic texts, films, and so on, this could be interesting to them. So I think there's I mean, I hope that there could be a lot of readers who would find this interesting, but it really is a critical study. So it really does dig into these uh, interpretive perspectives. And then it goes into saying, you know, here's the film and here's how we can understand what's going on in the film. So if people like reading that kind of stuff, I think they'll, they'll appreciate, I hope they'll appreciate this. Yeah, definitely. I think the first chapters in the book, they really kind of like give a completely new perspective on the way we think of myths and just reading those chapters before we get to the chapters where you provide examples is um, really interesting and can just kind of like changes our overall reading and understanding of the examples that you talk about um, in your chapters. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I had such a great time talking to you. Um, and I hope that once your next book is out, we can do it again and talk about witches. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ikra. It's been really nice to meet you and to have this conversation. I appreciate your interest in my book. Thank you. Um, I am Ikra Shigufsachima, your host for the new books in Gender Studies. Now go get your copy of The Goddess Smith in Contemporary Literature and Popular Culture, A Feminist Critique. Happy reading. Thank you for joining us today.